Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. We are so excited to share with you today our book club episode for July, featuring the highly anticipated second novel, Ordinary Human Failings by Megan Nolan. London in the 90s. A tabloid journalist begins to probe long-held secrets of an Irish family implicated in a shocking crime. A novel that failure, disappointment and the consequences of multi-generational trauma, this truly remarkable book will have you questioning everything. Megan Nolan is an Irish writer based in London. Her essays, fiction and reviews have been published in the New York Times, The White Review, The Sunday Times, The Guardian and The New Statesman. Her debut novel, Acts of Desperation, was published in 2021 to much acclaim. It was longlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize, shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award and was the recipient of a Bessie Trask Award. Her latest novel, Ordinary Human Failings, was published by Jonathan Cape earlier this month and we are beyond delighted to have Megan joining us to chat about it today. So Megan, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, we are very excited to hear what you've got to say about this amazing book. Um, but firstly, we would love to ask you, what are you currently reading? I, I just bought this like enormous, it's like a history of schizophrenia and it's a psych- psychiatrist who has like a lot of direct experience and case studies to draw from, but also it's sort of like about historical instances of it in like Greek mythology as well. Um, so I just thought that sounded really fascinating and I don't know anything about it and it's nice to learn about something you have no idea about, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. That sounds fascinating. What what did you say the book was called? Um, It's called A Malady of the Mind. Now, I wanted to start off by quickly touching on your debut novel, Acts of Desperation, because we currently run a debut spotlight series. So we highlight debut authors. And I was thinking when we were prepping for this interview that I remember your debut coming out and the amount of hype it received was like unreal. I think there was you and Caleb Azuma Nelson's Open Water that was like two of the most hyped debut novels that I personally come across. Could you tell us what that experience was like in having it so well received? Yeah, it was all a bit surreal because it was during it was during like the tail end of COVID, basically. So like the, the the day it came out was about maybe like three weeks before like pubs and restaurants reopened properly. So I was still like kind of you know I, I lived my own, and so I was still kind of like locked in the apartment alone. And it was very strange to have it all be happening and like be so well received. And like that, you know, obviously I was like delighted and really grateful, but also it was like very it was very unreal because I wasn't actually seeing any human beings saying any of these things. I wasn't like doing fan. <laughs> I wasn't seeing any in in any bookshops, you know, like. Mm-hmm. All those things that are the like normal markers of how these things seem successful, I wasn't really experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very strange. But also, I mean, obviously, you'd rather that than the other way when you're like getting fucking pilloried in your apartment. <laughs> so that was nice. But um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was it was like something I'd not anticipated at all. And people often think that I'm like being self-deprecating or something when I say that. But I just hadn't. I, I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know anything about like what it's like to release a book. So I didn't like think about reviews or I didn't like think about what was going to happen that much beyond publication. So all of it was sort of surprising. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, such a weird time for us all as well. I can imagine that Ordinary Human Feelings and that the publication of that has been a totally different experience, but I don't know if that's for the better or... I mean, it's been really nice to like be able to actually see people and speak with people and do events in person because I found that, like, you know, obviously you can do events on Zoom, but like my my like skill as a, in terms of like socialising is definitely better in person and, like, you know, you lose a lot of the things that 
like body language that like mean a lot in terms of um connecting with people so like speaking with people about ordinary human failings in person has been like a very different and rewarding experience and yeah i'm really grateful that i get to do that this time that's amazing. Now, on to Ordinary Human Failings. Um, I really would love to hear about the inspiration behind the book. And I read a, a brilliant article that you wrote for The Guardian about your own upbringing on a council estate in Ballyberg, I think it's yeah. how you say it, which is where part of the novel is set. And the, the crime at the centre of the novel is committed on an estate in London. Um, and I'd love to hear about the significance that these settings hold for you yeah so like as yeah as you say I, I grew up in this estate and um it was somewhere that i spent the first four years of my life so like obviously i don't remember loads about that but then we moved away and then returned my parents split up when i was four and we kind of like we kind of like moved all over the city it's a pretty small city but like we we like lived in about about 10 different houses between me being four and and 10 or 11 and then we returned to bali Beg. so it was this kind of like important site for me you know like a like a place that held a lot of meaning and and like because it, it was literally where i was born and as in like in the house there and I, I always like wanted to think more about that and about the estate because I felt like so I don't you know like in my life in in London especially people like like the class stratification is so extreme and so like direct whereas in Ireland even though I was ostensibly like working class and grew up in an estate it didn't feel that different to like any of my other friends even if they had a lot more money and then when I came to London everything sort of started changing in terms of how I perceived myself and and like how I perceived the estate and how I'd grown up and so I, I guess that was like part of why I was interested to think about estates and and that's why it like became such a, a part of ordinary human failings like it's such a character in the book almost like the estate and um and yeah I don't know it's like as I say in the article a little bit like it's such a place of incredible community and like in a really beautiful way and then also you know by by nature of the lack of space you're like so on top of one another in a way that does breed not not necessarily violence but like does breed sort of like overly intimate resentment I suppose and like and also a lot of projection and judgment that maybe doesn't exist if you have enough space for your neighbours that you don't need to be on top of them and so yeah I was a little bit interested in all, in all those like ideas that you might glean or, or like create about another person or another family because you're right on top of them mm -hmm. I think you've articulated that perfectly <laughs> that um <laughs> overly intimate quality and and you know the, the claustrophobia of the environment was yeah. was written so well and I just think it's those types of settings are quite underrepresented in in books so I, I really appreciated it I love the way you wrote about them and I think it was like perfect setting for for this particular story thanks yeah and I feel like you know this is not like a universal universally true thing to say but like I feel like whenever estates or like working class people are written about in in a lot of you know mainstream literary fiction it's like a little bit like Lionel Asbo type thing like the Martin Amos book where it's like very it's very like oh the scary underclass are coming and like everyone's gonna everyone's gonna learn what the working class are really all about and and and, and yeah I, I feel like there aren't actually that many novels that, that have fairly relatable normal people on an estate and so yeah it was kind of nice to try and do that. It was, I mean, I'm a, a woman that grew up on a council estate and you you really do capture like the energy and the vibe of like yeah, council estate life. Like it's not because it's not. Yeah, it's not perfect. But there is there is definitely a, a, a feeling that is, I believe, very unique to living yeah. there. And you really captured that so well. Thank you. I'm so glad you think that. And also at the centre of this story, alongside this fantastic setting, we have this shocking crime that I won't go too much into detail about because of spoilers, but it is 
deeply moving and traumatic. Why did you want there to be this kind of incident to serve as like a catalyst for the family at the heart of the book? So so basically the, the, the origin point of the book or like the inspiration was that I read there's a Gordon Gordon Byrne non-fiction book called Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son, which is about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. And he had a, he had like an anecdote and it was it was like barely even a paragraph as far as I remember. But he was like saying that a tabloid journalist had approached Peter Sutcliffe's family, several of whom were like quite severe alcoholics. And they like approached them as as happened in my book, where, where like basically offering them to be sequestered as like a source on tap and they would get free, free booze, free, some pocket money, whatever. And so I was like very struck by this idea. I, I, don't, I don't even think it actually happened. I think the tabloid journalist just offered it to them. But I was very struck by this concept of like the hotel and like the, the that kind of like pressure cooker of a family at their most extreme point, you know, and like all being kept together. So that was um, the starting point. I, 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 think, I think I read that in 2018, like quite a long time ago now. And so I was just like thinking about that very very low key, low key thinking about that for a while and then and so yeah I, I think I was just like trying to think about what the crime would be then and I also had had separately I'd had like an interest myself in in a couple of different things so like there's um there's a I think initially it was a novel and then it was a play and then it was the screenplay on channel four it was a film called boy a and it was like kind of um imagined future of, of like one of the boys it, it, it was a fictionalized version of the the boys who killed um James Bulger and mm-hmm. this boy a was like kind of um imagining the release from detention and what that life would look like um, and I thought that was a really amazing film and so I think I, I already was like a bit interested in the idea of like children who kill or children who do severe violence and like mm-hmm. that 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 seemed like a, an interesting subject area basically. Yeah as Lydia said it, it's really shocking but it's so powerful the way that you've written it and I was really curious about because true crime has become such a phenomenon in like the last few years is that something that you have been in, interested in as like a fan or is this just something that you were drawn to because of those things that you read about? I was never like a huge true crime person, but I did have like a phase when I was quite young, like 15, where I remember I was I was like in a jumble sale or whatever in secondary school and um, I just happened to buy this is like Anne Rule book called The Stranger Beside Me by Ted Bundy. And it's like a very classic, like, kind of corny but kind of amazing true crime classic and I read that and was like I think that was the first time I ever read anything in depth this is like pre-internet by the way so like I'm I'm 33 so like my teenage years were mostly pre-internet and or like you know like I had access to it but I didn't have it at home or like I wasn't able to use it a lot and so this is like you know if, if you're growing up now you can just literally google fucking serial killer and find the most horrifying things on earth but that was not the case when I was growing up so when I read this book it was the first time I'd ever read anything about like extreme sadism or like pointless brutality of that kind so obviously it was very shocking and I did I, I was like a horror fan and I read a lot with Stephen King but I didn't I didn't like dive a lot into true crime and yeah like I think I have like the kind of similar level to a lot of people a lot of women especially who just like idly listen to horrifying podcasts every now and then but like <laughs> I'm not really I'm not like really engaged with it but Gordon Burns books are like are like really incredibly well-written versions of true crime. They're like another level where he like, he went to spend years at a time in these communities and like really embedded himself in them. So it's like, yeah, it, it's a very good, not good, but like good is like too weak a word, but it's a very like committed version of true crime where I think a lot of it is just like regurgitating horrible facts, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's sometimes it's hard to talk about true crime if you are you know interested in the subject without kind of sensationalizing it or you know you do worry that you're gonna kind of make light of it but I am also the type of person that kind of goes to sleep listening to yeah horrendous things but you know 
I find it interesting. So that's the thing is like, and like right, rightfully so. There are like a lot of questions about all this at the moment. But ultimately, like my my friend, I don't know if you guys know. Um, my he's a very close friend, Michael Francisco Garcia. So he he wrote um a book called The All Go Into the Dark about Bible John. Like so, he gets asked about this stuff a lot, and a lot of it is kind of essentially like why are you why are you writing about these things? And like it's not it's not like rocket science. They're interesting things because yeah. they're so extreme. You know what I mean? Like it's not like it's not evil or strange to be interested. It's like very natural because they're such unusual strange behaviors so mm-hmm. like I, I don't feel like you have to apologize for being interested in those things but i think there is a level of like yeah you, you wanted to be like written in a certain way that is respectful and not like yeah not really salacious and gross yeah 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 precisely I think you definitely wrote about it in a respectful way because yeah. I, I find it quite off-putting when people sort of sensationalize these things. I mean, Lydia yeah. loves all the blood and glory of everything, but <laughs> I'm like, freaks me out. With these tiles, please. I get to your freak out. I can't. <laughs> now, you you briefly touched on then about the the journalist. I think you said was it did you say Peter Sutcliffe? You said the journalist involved in that story, and you said about him offering speak about the right person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you you briefly touched on that journalist, and we've obviously seen over the years like the effects of tabloid journalism, and especially how heightened tabloid journalism was in the nineties, which is of course when your novel is set, and and sort of the the effects it's had on British culture. I think is so interesting, and I wanted to ask what the the sort of research of that kind of journalism was like for you did you have to do much research of the journalism in that era um yeah so what i did was i I didn't quite know how to like i wasn't sure if there was going to be like an academic study or anything like that that would be of any use to me but what i did instead was um there were several memoirs written by former tabloid journalists and and they were like they're they're not like famous memoirs they're like self i think they were self-published and if not they were like very small scale publishing or whatever and so i I looked for those or i just yeah like happened happened across them and they were quite interesting actually because they were published before the Levison inquiry so it was like a little bit before the tide had turned against that kind of tabloid journalism so they were like really really shameless they weren't they were not like apologetic about the kind of horrifying things they did they were almost like laughing about the horrifying things they did in a way that like I don't know if I'm sure like those particular people might still be like that nowadays but like you certainly wouldn't publish that nowadays like there is some shame about it now now that like you know post all that stuff and like all the inquiries and it's not that like tabloids are good or perfect now but like I do think there is some awareness of being so immoral in public and mm-hmm. and like these guys the, the things they were saying are honestly so insane like the complicity with the police like the way they treated like grieving parents it was just all so crazy to me and I was aware that people did these things but I thought at least they would be ashamed of them and they just weren't and that was very interesting to me because then I was like wow it's not it's not even like oh, I'm going to be a bit immoral and do this thing. It's like it's like the newspaper has its own morality and like its own moral universe that they exist within and they don't actually, they don't like cooperate with the outside normal morality. Like the moral good for them is getting the story and that's like its own good thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that your book was such a great representation though of, of that whole argument around ethics and journalism because I think it's such a fascinating topic and I never like to kind of assume the worst in people, but it's really hard to be like oh no they're like just trying to do a job when like you said like some of them can be so shameless about the things that they've done and like the horrifying things that they've done it's it's kind of disturbing it is and like and and yeah i think that's why i was interested to try and write the like write tom's character was like trying to think about how someone could get to that stage and like not not feel ashamed of their behavior and uh 
and yeah, and, and so that was quite like a, and I agree with you totally. And like, I've like worked in, I've never worked in a tabloid myself, but I've worked in newspaper offices alongside people who work in tabloids. So like, I know they're not crazy monsters and it's like interesting to think about how you can get to a stage as someone who's not a psychopath and like still be able to do that, you know? Absolutely. And I think like linking in with journalism and as you were saying, like the character of Tom in your novel is a journalist, a tabloid journalist. And he's sort of the conduit through which we begin to to see more about the story and reveal more about the family who are at the centre of things. Why did you want Tom to be the one who guided us through the story? And was it difficult to know how much he kind of was going to reveal all the things that people would reveal to him throughout? Yeah, I think I think I was interested in not only via Tom and the newspaper, but also, I guess, like with the estate or the community, mm. like see, seeing the family from the outside first and like seeing seeing like people's assumptions and judgments about them in the beginning and then like going really deep into them as individuals. So I think it was almost, yeah, I guess like Tom was like a framing device in that way. Like he was he was like used to give a little bit of like um, snap judgment before you mm-hmm. get into them as in a real way. But also I, I think like about about like 10,000 words were cut of Tom as a character in the end. Like, um, so initially he was like much more of a main character as as an individual. And like there was some there was some more backstory and like making him like an actual person. And then my editor was just like, you know what, I think we need to like focus on the family and like that's the main point of the story or whatever. And I do agree with her, but also it's like a little bit, I do kind of like, yeah, I'm interested to like maybe put that, I, I might like write a short story or something with it, with, with like his backstory. Cause like, yeah, yeah it's kind of a game to lose it, you know? I honestly, because I really was fascinated by Tom and his job and and the actions he takes throughout the book, and it absolutely would be fascinating to find out a little bit more about him personally and you know his backstory. But I can see why in this book, you know, it's not completely you know essential to know that. Um, oh, and I think like, and she was right because it is a very short book that you're sort of like distracting. I guess if it's only like sixty, seventy thousand words, you don't want to yeah. kind of take the focus away from what the actual focus is. And I did agree that like the family. Are the are like the central focus of the book, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's kind of nice to like do something with that, and because yeah, I, I did think about it a lot and like wrote about him quite a lot at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, but I think he does really work as that, like you were saying, as a framing device or as a you know when we see things through Tom's eyes, things are very are quite clear cut. I would say if that's not too yeah. forward, but they feel very clear cut with him. And yeah. I think that as soon as we begin to then explore everybody in a little bit more detail, it does start to feel like oh, like this is not just what I originally thought it was going to be. This is actually a completely different story or a completely different aspect of their character is at play here, which is fascinating. Yeah, and I think like it's it's like it was fun to kind of start the story that because I started it from you know I I wrote it straight through chronologically as you read it basically and um mm. and yeah it was kind of like interesting to start it in a in a fairly like genre way where it, mm. there's a crime and it's a journalist and who did it. And then to kind of try and see how that works and when you're doing something totally different after that. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited if you um, turn his story into a short story. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Not from you, please. (laughs) Now, there's a topic that I really want to speak about, which I I felt that you explored in, in such a powerful way. And that was motherhood and specifically um, a woman's choice to have children um, and, and sort of the impact that that choice holds, especially for the Irish women, for young Irish women. And there are sections in the book that, that I thought were so devastating about what this experience does to 
to the character Carmel and I'm not going to give any spoilers away but I think that rather than me speaking about it I found that Pandora Sykes articulated it perfectly in a recent newsletter I don't know if you've read it but she said that on Carmel and on the experiences that you write about she said they should be sent to pro-lifers as an example of what happens when young women are forced to have babies they neither want nor are able to care for and I wanted to ask, did you ever feel sort of reluctant to explore that narrative, especially in the level of detail that you do? Um, it wasn't something that I had thought about before I started writing the book. As in, I didn't think, I, it wasn't in my mind to include that particularly. And and how it happened, I suppose, was like, I was trying to think about about how a mother could be so alienated from her child and like, you know, some 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 possible reasons how this, this woman, Carmel, could like, could end up being so removed from Lucy. And then one of the things I thought about was like, well, I guess if you had an unwanted pregnancy, which you ended up not being able to terminate for whatever reason, and you did have a child in that circumstance, it makes it, it, it would it would be a logical possibility that you could be extremely alienated from the child then because you'd had this incredibly traumatic um, experience with bringing her into the world. And so that was why why it came up. But then, but then as soon as I came to that possibility, I then felt like, oh, it's really important that I write about that actually. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that that did come in, into my mind because, yeah, like in Ireland, obviously it's, it's only like six years, five, six years since uh, abortion was legalized. And it's, it's only like very moderately legalized compared to a lot, a lot of other countries. And so, yeah, like my entire life was, yeah, I was already living in England by the time it was legalized. So it's, it's such a huge part of my generation and every generation before me our like teenage years were so characterized by an extreme terror of pregnancy you know and um and so I kind of wanted to capture that and like the complete horror of the idea and like yeah just like the complete lack of escape and especially like if you don't have any money how there was like there's quite literally like no option you know there's not like there's not like a thing you can do or like try if you don't have a rich parent who can like bring you to England there's literally nothing you can do and so like that sort of like really frustrated insane horror of like having this happen in your body and having no option is so extreme and crazy so yeah I just I, I did feel like I wanted to capture that because lots of people including myself like post repeal in Ireland you're a little bit like oh you know we worked really hard to get to get to this point and now we just kind of want to forget that it ever happened and like you want to move on and I think it's sort of important to not let, let ourselves completely do that and like realise how recent it was that that was not the case. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the aspects that I found really interesting about Carmel was, and this isn't technically too much of a spoiler, but is that she she very much disassociates from her situation and yeah. kind of, she almost like splits herself into these two two people and one of these people go in a box and she just ignores that situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I found that fascinating about, you know, her ability to do that and obviously the ramifications of that on her. But how did you go about kind of developing that idea of like she's got she's just going to decide that or not even decide, but it's just going to happen that she's going to not acknowledge the fact that she's pregnant? Um, well, I suppose it is like famously a thing that there's a couple of like famous cases in Ireland of particularly very young women who who like died because of that basically who like um mm. who denied their pregnancy not only to other people but themselves to the extent they were giving birth and like like 
basically didn't know that they were going to give birth. And there was like one very famous case. Uh, it was, uh, oh no, that was it. Anne Lovish was her name. Where she was, a, I think she was 15 or 16. And she, she like gave birth without anyone having known she was pregnant, like late at night in freezing cold and and she died. And like, it was a famous case in Ireland because it was sort of a turn. It wasn't, well, it was, you know, it was like still a good 30 years before anything legally changed. But I suppose it was like the beginning of these like sort of emergency unwanted pregnancies and be- becoming like public conversation at least. So yeah, I, I was just like aware of that possibility and it is particularly to do with pregnancy but like like the mind is a very powerful thing and like you can deny a lot of stuff and and like make your body not believe reality and a lot of people who are in extreme states are actually very well able to do that and so yeah i've always been quite interested in like the power of the human mind to like to deny that that stuff she's such an incredible character and i think once people read this book you know our, our listeners if they've not read the book yet i just know that like she is the kind of character that will stay with you for a long time and, and I was quite worried about asking that question before because I know it's this kind of annoying, stereotypical thing that people do where they turn to Irish female writers and go, so what are your thoughts on these, like, horrendous topics that you probably don't have to think about all the time um but i just thought that you you captured that that so well and and the way you explored it was so sort of profound and i I don't really have the words to describe you know how moving that was as a reading experience but i think pandora's likes absolutely nailed on the head when she said that like it should be sent to pro-lifers because it's as though they just have no kind of grasp on how debilitating that situation can be yeah that's like a lot of the time when when you like hear those perspectives it's like like, yeah, it feels like you, you can't possibly know what it actually feels like because if you did, then you would never allow it to happen, you know? It's, yeah. just, it's it's so impossible to, to live with that. Like, especially as the fucking 16-year-old or, or younger, like, to be a teenager and dealing with that is so, so unbearable. And yes, I, I was, like, glad to try and represent that a little bit. And even though, yeah, it was, like, obviously quite upsetting and hard to, ra- to write, but, like, yeah, it, it, was, it was something that felt important to try and do. Absolutely. Now, I, I really want to ask, I've seen you speak about, and I've seen um, a few reviewers comment on the fact that um, Ordinary Human Valence is sort of a different, a sort of change in direction from Acts of Desperation in terms of, of genre. And I'm curious about your own thoughts on genre and and writers and books being put into specific categories so what kind of writer would you describe yourself as and and what kind of your thoughts on people being boxed off as a particular kind of writer yeah I think like I mean if somebody who who has no idea who I am or like uh anything about my work asks me what sort of writer I am obviously it's like easiest to just go I write literary fiction right because that like catches everything Mm. but I but I do think that like the privilege of literary fiction is like you are allowed to do a different thing every time if you want and like that is kind of what I want to do and so yeah I don't know like I, I was kind of I was kind of like amused by the shock in a lot of the reviews where they were like and she's done something different this time and it's like what are you going to do like write the exact same kind of book like that would be very very strange surely um <laughs> so yeah I, I don't I don't know it, like it doesn't seem that strange or like remarkable to me that that I wrote a different kind of book but people seem to be very surprised and I I, I guess I'm like trying to figure that out myself I don't, I don't really understand that and like I don't I don't I don't honestly really understand what sort of book I could have written as my second book would have been similar to Acts of Desperation like I don't I don't really get that yeah I don't know like the the, the idea that I have for my third novel is also completely different to like the first two it, it seems very obvious to me that, like that's the most pleasurable way to have a career is like to try something different every time you know and like and obviously they'll have things in common and I think like the kind of writer that I am that I am that like every book will hopefully have in common is basically that I have a skill hopefully for like psychological insight and like being very close into someone's interior life and you know that was like 
very overstated in Act of Desperation because it was like one person's interior monologue. But obviously in this new one as well, it like gets very close to the three the, the three characters that it goes really in depth with. Obviously you're like with their with their like mindsets very very closely. And I I, pre- I presume that will maintain itself in my in my subsequent books. But like I don't know the the subject matter and like style or whatever. I just don't, I, I have no idea how you wouldn't change that honestly. I don't, I don't understand how anyone painting all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the idea of like people reading the proof like what oh my goodness like <laughs> she's been different what so, but I think also one of those things that that you definitely have in common is your ability to write amazing women and many of them with kind of very realistic naturalistic flaws but that have this kind of unbreakable inner strength almost Carmel in particular is so interesting because I mean she doesn't suffer false gladly and um, I love that about her what draws you to those particular characters I think it is like I don't don't think it's specifically to Ireland but I think it's like a interesting quality of Irish women that like um you know historically are, are extremely subjected to oppression and like and, and apart from like the more the more obvious kinds of oppression just like kind of confined these roles of, of being the mommy and and like taking care of people or whatever but then if you if you're actually like with those women even even the ones who are the most confined to like stereotypical circumstances they're, they're like often extremely funny and weird people and like <laughs> and like and like very rebellious in their in their in whatever ways they could find before they were actually allowed to be rebellious and i've always found that like a very interesting dynamic which is like yeah that they were like in these roles so firmly and yet like had a lot of wildness in them yeah it's like something i was thinking about when Sinead o'connor dies last week i was like she she really was like a very special case of somebody who actually embodied rebellion Whereas a lot, and I think that's why she's so important to a lot of Irish women and, and other women where like, she, she's like actually doing the thing that a lot of women have the sort of impulse or like personality to do, but don't actually, they're not actually able to do it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So if it wasn't already obvious, everyone, we loved Ordinary Human Failings and we love Megan Nolan. So before we let you go, Megan, our final favourite question is what would you like to recommend to us and to our listeners? Um, okay, so two things, neither which are books oh that's okay that's totally fine <laughs> anything we'll take anything so there's a podcast that i love at the moment i'm, I'm a little bit of like a nerd about journalism like I've, I've never been like a i've never had like a staff job in journalism but i've obviously worked in the industry for quite a long time now and like as as i've evidenced by tom character in the book i'm quite interested in the whole thing and there's a podcast called killed which is about killed stories like um like stories that get cancelled and like the reasons behind it so like mm. there's you know back in the day when when journalism was a lot wealthier than it is now there were certain magazines that would like like Vanity Fair used to commission like for every one story it published they would commission four stories so that like, they would they would just like kill these like three stories a month basically that they had paid someone like ten thousand dollars to write and so sometimes they get killed for no particular reason but a lot of the time they're like killed for really fascinating reasons to me and so like to give an example there was one where like A.A. A. Gill the Sunday Times British journalist was commissioned by Graydon Carter at, this, at Vanity Fair to do a kind of of like humorous takedown of this like very very trendy Manhattan shop and then it so happened that like 9-11 was the, like the day that they were meant to publish this story and Graydon Carter was like I think we better not I think we better cool it on that one for a minute and so like all these things I'm really interested in like about why stories get removed from the media and like why they get killed and then the other thing I'll recommend is um a very striking very unusual polish tv series called decalogue which is like each every episode is a stand standalone plot but they're all based on the ten commandments basically 
and it's so dark but it's really good and like yeah i think that's like the, the, the thing i've been most able to like fully put my phone down and like completely watch and not be distracted by lately oh that sounds fascinating the fact that you put your phone down as well the power line <laughs> come on <laughs> That sounds um, so good. It actually sounds amazing. And before we let you go, Megan, I have to ask you this question because I'm dead excited because I heard you mention a third book. Is that going to be with us soon? <laughs> um, the short answer is no because I barely started writing. Um, so I'm trying to figure out basically, I'm like working on an idea for a nonfiction book and a third novel. I'm not really sure which I'm going to prioritize first. So I've kind of given myself a deadline. I've given myself like this month more or less off because I'm still, I'm still doing like publicity stuff for, for this book. And then I'm going to get, I'm going to get back to writing full time in, in like September, October. So I don't, I don't fully know which will come first. I'm going to try and maybe work on, on the nonfiction and the new novel simultaneously for a couple of years. So like, I think it'll actually be a fairly long time to be honest, but, oh, but I well, don't know about that. Nice to take a bit of time. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> have i also read that you're relocating to new york or have i made that up yeah i'm gonna well i'm certainly gonna come so my, my so the, this this but ordinary Feelings comes out here in february so i'm planning to be here for at least like six months in that in that period but maybe longer um i've got a lot of friends here and like i, I kind of always wanted to come and just like not i would never come forever but i'll come for like a year or two years or something i cannot <laughs> tell you how jealous i am <laughs> i love new york so much I expect invitations. I'm just saying. We'll do a lot of live events. Let's do that. Oh my gosh, yes. So I am very sad that we've got to let you go. I could talk your head off all day about your book and about you as a writer. I honestly think that you are easily one of my favorite contemporary writers and yeah i just think you're you're incredible and your work is incredible so um thank you so much for for coming onto our podcast and for your wonderful work so ordinary human failings is out now and published by jonathan cape i'll be popping a link in the show notes for all our lovely listeners and megan where can our listeners follow you online if they wish to i uh, just on instagram that's the only thing i use anymore um yeah which is just my name i think <laughs> Perfect. And if you would like to words, if you would like to follow us, you can also do so at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram and threads and at a pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate review and subscribe so we can reach more listeners. But finally, thank you so much once again, Megan. This has been so wonderful and I'm honestly so buzzing that we've we've got you on. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for having you. Thank you. Ah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.